Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, Amazon's got a new TLS implementation that's actually pretty fancy. We'll share the details with you then. The NSA's X Keyscore system's fascinating, but you could have rolled it yourself. We'll share the details then. We've got a great batch of your questions, our answers, a rockin' roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. This is episode 221. We stream this episode live on, oh my gosh, I can't even believe it, July 2nd, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and iX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year's show goes on. Our live stream, why, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com, which not only powers all of our distribution of content, but also our live stream. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hey, buddy. So, uh, welcome to episode 200, and uh, if you can believe it, Alan, 221, and I, I mean, I don't want to brag, but we haven't missed a week yet, and I, mm-hmm. I was like... I thought this might be the week, to be honest with you. I thought it might be the week. This, for some reason, I just had like this feeling, and I was like, what are we going to do if we don't do an episode this week? But no, too much is happening. Alan Jude couldn't stand still. There's too much going on in the world of TechSnap. Um, and so not only do we have a crazy great feedback segment, a very ZFS feedback segment, which inspired mm-hmm. an incredibly good pre-show conversation, which has got me like rethinking the way I'm going to do storage here at the network. Uh, but we also have a crazy good roundup with some super important stories. But first, Alan, why don't we start with this Amazon story about a new open source TLS implementation? And maybe the beauty is, is how few lines of code it actually required to make it happen. Yep. Uh, so Amazon's released S2N, uh, which, uh, which is a new TLS implementation, uh, originally named Signal to Noise, because uh, you know when something's encrypted, it's supposed to hide in the noise and not look like there's actually a signal there. Uh, but it's a brand new implementation of the TLS protocol, and it's only about 6,000 lines of code if you don't count the comments and the blank lines and so on. Uh, it's been fully audited, uh, both by people from inside the project, but also uh, they've paid for an external security audit. And uh, they promised as part of the project that Amazon will pay for a re-audit once every year. Uh, So that's kind of a a nice promise to have going forward is that there is I really like that. That gives me some insurance almost. Yeah. Yeah. However, it doesn't replace OpenSSL. uh, And Amazon's still supporting the Internet Core uh, Infrastructure Initiative to improve OpenSSL and so on. Okay. Okay. what it does is it implements just the TLS, TLS protocol, which is like libssl, which is part of OpenSSL. It doesn't actually re-implement any of like the crypto primitives or the encryption and the algorithms and all that kind of stuff, which actually comes in OpenSSL mm. from libcrypto. Yeah. So SUN uh, can then be built against any of the various libcrypto implementations there are. So uh, oh. you can build S2N on OpenSSL or LibreSSL, the one from OpenBSD, or on BoringSSL, the one from Google, or on Apple's Common Crypto Framework. As a BSD user, you must like that. Yeah. Uh, I still use OpenSSL, but uh, having the option of LibreSSL yeah. is quite nice. Yeah. Uh, you know, the fact that they... Partly is because that's not where most people's problems with OpenSSL are. And so I think LibCrypto is almost the same in... OpenSSL, LibreSSL, and BoringSSL, except for some of them ripped out some of the older stuff they didn't want or whatever. Uh, but anyway, uh, the API appears to be very easy to use. They have uh, documentation up there and shows, you know, it's just there's not that many functions to use and it's all done relatively sanely. Hmm. Uh, and 
It looks pretty good. Uh, there's a, it includes a client-side library and the server-side, but the client-side's not quite finished yet. Uh, but it means that you can very easily write a server that will accept TLS connections uh, using this today and that the client-side is currently experimental. Hmm. Alan? Uh, some, hmm? Yes? Um, uh, I, mean, <laughs> I don't mean to interrupt you, but uh, uh, what grounds and legitimacy does Amazon have in this area to do something like this, in your opinion? Well, basically, currently, the way OpenSSL is, it's very hard to write code uh, to use OpenSSL, and um, it's very hard to read the OpenSSL code, whereas Amazon's code, uh, you know, they have very strict style guide, and, you know, it's all designed to be very easy to read and easy to follow. Yeah. Well, uh, and, and also, so you got to figure it's being the, the fact num- that you can look at the code and see that it works. Being the number one retailer online and having the EC2 infrastructure, you got to figure they have a pretty big dog in this particular hunt. Yeah, uh, you know, they don't want the next heart bleed to hit them. Hmm. And so by reducing the surface area, they feel that this will be better for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having a, a small code base that they know has been checked over means there's less chance of hidden stuff. Uh, but specifically, they have this list of features that they strive for with S2N. Uh, the first one is that S2N encrypts and then erases, uh, encrypts or erases the plain text data as quickly as possible. Hmm. For example, when you decrypt uh, data buffers... Uh, they're actually erased as they're read by the application. So when the library receives encrypted data and then decrypts it, as your application reads it out of the buffer that uh, S2M provides, uh, S2M erases the data so the plain text isn't left laying around somewhere. Hmm. So you don't have to remember to go erase that or, or indicate that you're done with it. As you're reading it, you have the only copy of it now, and it's your problem in your memory space, and it moves out of the library. Hmm. Uh, S2N also uses the operating system features to protect data from being swapped to disk or uh, showing up in core dumps and stuff like that. Uh, whereas, because OpenSSL had its own memory allocator, it was kind of missing the ability to do that. Uh, part of it is because S2N is designed to be used on standard hardware infrastructure where OpenSSL has been ported to everything. And in doing so, they've kind of had to abstract away because of so many differences and so many different uh, hardware architectures and, and operating systems and so on. Whereas S2N is targeting, you know, the standard stuff that we use on servers. Uh, but specifically, S2N avoids implementing rarely used options or extensions, as well as features with a history of triggering protocol-level vulnerabilities. For example, there's no support for session renegotiation, which was a, a big flaw in a, a big series of flaws in SSL in the past, and uh, DTLS, um, which I think is the TLS over UDP thing. Oh, okay. Um, both of which have, you know, they're handfuls of SSL vulnerabilities related to those two things, and so S2N just won't support them. Okay. Uh, S2N's written in C, but makes very light use of the C standard library and wraps all memory handling, string handling, and serialization in uh, systematic bounds-enforcing checks. So basically, they wrote their own wrappers for stuff to make sure that every time you're doing something with you know string handling that you don't end up going past the bounds of the strings or whatever. Uh, so that Again, common mistakes don't happen. Yeah, right. Yeah, they say, uh, the security of TLS and its associated encryption algorithms depends on a secure random number generator. Uh, S2M provides uh, every thread with two separate random number generators, one to be used for public randomly generated data that may appear in the clear, and a separate one for private data that has to marry in secret. This approach lessens the risk of potential uh, predictability weaknesses in the random number generator from leaking as part of the clear text. So they use two separate random number generators, so if the clear text uh, has some predictability in it somehow, 
they can't use that to attack the encrypted part because it'll be a separate random number generator that will have a different uh, predictability or whatever. Uh, but one of the main features that I like, especially from like a server administrator side, is that uh, currently the way in OpenSSL, every so often we have to go into our servers and change that list of algorithms in what order mm-hmm, we want to support mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. Remember, we've we got like Mozilla's best practice document hmm. on it, end up with a string that's literally like four lines long of all the <laughs> algorithms in the order of preference. Well, instead, what they did, I have a link here in the show notes uh, for the um, S2N, mm. is they have... Uh, one called default, which uh, will change over time as what is the ah, right. best practice. So you just define default, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Or you can specify one of the date uh, snapshots. That oh, got, clever! Uh, where every time they change the default, they'll snapshot the date of when they did it, and it shows. So, you know, if you use twenty fifteen oh three oh six, which is March six, that's what the defaults were then. Hmm. Uh, right, and so. If you want to make sure that your application doesn't change without you knowing it, you pick what the specific date of now, right? So you would use the March 6th one because the last time it changed. That's clever. And that way, if they change the default in the future, it's not going to change your setting. Right. But if you want to keep up automatically, you can use default. Uh, and you can see they show... Hmm. Uh, that's good that's idea. the other interesting thing. that They show back to uh, uh, June of 2014... So it seems S2N's been uh, in development at uh, Amazon for quite a while now. Mm-hmm. But you can see that you know back then they used to allow SSL v3, and now it's disabled by default. And uh, you know they used to uh, not have the AES GCM, but now they do. And you know they used to allow RC4 and DHE, but those are both gone now, and so on. Hmm. So having that in there. So that you can you can peg to a specific value if you want, but you can also follow best practices if you want. Uh, it's just much nicer than the way you do it in OpenSSL. <laughs> Partly because they don't want to go and change what that original default was ever. Uh, and they didn't really provide a way to say, I want what the good defaults were at this time or whatever, right? So, That's a good uh, idea. ThreatPost threat has a, a bunch more coverage on it, and uh, but... It's really nice to see this API, you know, as if you're trying to actually write a program that's going to speak TLS as a client or a server. Mm-hmm. This library seems uh, very appealing. Yeah. So something <clears> to watch with uh, interest. Yeah. Now, I know LibreSSL, uh, which is a fork of OpenSSL started by the people at OpenBSD, uh, they've been working on their own uh, TLS API, and I know they're using that internally in the, like their new HTTP server and a bunch of things, uh, but I haven't looked at the API enough to compare it to the Amazon one. I, I wonder... Uh, how close they are and, and how what things they did differently. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Fascinating. All right, Alan. So and uh, Alan has links to additional coverage from Threat Post and and the links to the GitHub page that Amazon has put out as well in the show notes. Any other thoughts, Alan? Uh, no. And they they have uh, information there if you do find a vulnerability by auditing uh. their code or whatever, what you should do with it. Uh, nice. And if you find any other kind of bugs, or like just open a bug, uh, open it up on uh, GitHub. Which is nice. A lot of bigger companies are like, oh, well, we post our code on GitHub, but if you want to do a change request, you actually come over here, sign up for something, sign right. this something you're not already you used to, copyright, something you don't already have an account to, something you don't already use on a daily basis. Right, but you have to sign away all your rights to the, hmm. the bug you're committing and all this right. nonsense. Like yeah. if you're trying to commit to like Puppet or something, yeah. it's ridiculous. It's no good. 
It's no good. Uh, so it's nice to see Amazon doing it that way, too. Yeah. All right, Alan, well, then I'll take a minute here, and I'll tell you about our first sponsor this week, and that is DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean rocks. It's Linux on-demand infrastructure or free, free BSD infrastructure. I shouldn't even say Linux anymore because they have they have great free BSD support because when they went free BSD, they went all in on, like, tutorials and everything. DigitalOcean yes. really rocks in this regard. Check them out. They're simple cloud hosting provider, and they're dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server on your own – whatever you want, on your own schedule. And here's the best part. You can get started in less than 55 seconds. And pricing plans, they start only $5 a month. That'll get you 512 megabytes of RAM, 20 gigabytes of SSD. Yeah, they're all SSD. One CPU and a terabyte of transfer. And right here, if you're watching the video, ver- video version, you can see they have really straightforward pricing. So um, if you use our promo code, uh, SnapOcean, that's one word. It's lowercase, SnapOcean. You're going to get a $10 credit. So you could try out the $5 rig, the one I just talked about, two months for free. You could also step up to the $10 rig. Now, that one's got a two terabyte transfer limit. Two terabytes. That's, That's a lot. Yeah. Like, if you're starting out as a podcaster or you're distributing content or you're a small project, open source project, two terabytes is going to be plenty for $10 a month. Well, your first month would be free if you use our promo code SNAPOcean. That's slick. And then here's the best part. They've got data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, and Germany. So what I have done with uh, – I have kind of actually – this advice I've just given you as podcasters, I've kind of replicated it on a smaller scale for the Unfilter show. The Unfilter show has several droplets dedicated to distributing content to our supporters. Uh, I've got one in San Francisco, one in New York, and one in London. And that way, people in those locations, they, they all seed BitTorrent sync folders to each other super fast. It's like they have a local CDN. Well, they do. They have a local CDN in their area. It's nice. And the best part is the interface. It is super intuitive. But the control panel, it's like, it's just the start. Yeah, in there you can do snapshots and DNS management, create, destroy machines, template machines, one-click deployment of like, you know, the entire LAMP stack or Ghost, which is an incredible blogging platform, or GitLab. It does all of those things and that's really nice. But one of the best things about DigitalOcean is something you don't actually get to see. It's their API. They have a really good, straightforward API that they're dedicated to iterating so it gets better and better in a really well-documented fashion so that way you can plan around it and build around it. And that API gives you all the functionality of their badass dashboard right through the API. So you, you can plug it into Puppet. There's apps available to work. Or, 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 or really simply, like if, if you are like me and you're never going to write a line of code around their API, go grab like one of their desktop applets that like integrates it right into Windows, Mac, or, or Linux, or, or anything. Like You can just integrate yeah. your droplet management into your system tray. That's crazy. So go over to DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean. Try them out. Get a $10 credit. You could deploy a core OS or a FreeBSD or an Ubuntu or a Fedora. they got lots of different distros. I think they got Debian, too. Yeah. And the other way you can tell that their platform has matured uh, and is, is ready for prime time is that they have a Teams feature. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. they have the whole system. So, hey, we're a company. We might actually have more than one person that needs access to droplets, and sharing passwords is bad. Oh, we have team accounts. Problem solved. Bingo. Yeah, I'm glad to see them roll this out too. It's and you know here at yeah. JB, this is exactly what we needed. Like I didn't quite realize this was becoming a problem until they announced this. And I'm like, ah, yeah, we were starting to do this. So it's just yep. just just in time. Yep, another nice feature. Because oh, you would either end up in the situation, oh, that droplet's in my account, not the JB account or right? something. Yep, or or, you know, Rikai needs access to this droplet that Noah created, and where is it? <laughs> you got it. You got it. DigitalOcean.com, and use the promo code SNAPOcean, and a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. You guys rock. So uh, we've talked about – it feels like we've been talking about Edward Snowden for two years straight, and uh, the Intercept has had yeah. revelation after revelation, but 
we've always missed out on a few details that the TechSnap audience could really sink their teeth into. Yes. Uh, so this time, finally, we have uh, more detailed analysis of how X Keyscore actually works. And most importantly, the actual software stack they used <laughs> to build it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think some people will be surprised by how... Uh, <laughs> how you could have done it yourself? the mill it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the NSA's x program, which was first revealed by The Guardian quite a while ago, sweeps up countless people's internet searches, emails, documents, usernames, passwords, and other private communications. Uh, x is fed a constant flow of internet traffic by tapping into the fiber optic cables that make up the backbone of the world's communication networks. Yeah. And among other sources uh, that it processes. Starting uh, as of 2008, when the documents we have from Snowden are from, uh, the surveillance system boasted 150 field sites that covered uh, United States, Mexico, Brazil, United Kingdom, Spain, Russia, Nigeria, uh, Somalia, Pakistan, Japan, Australia, etc. Uh, interesting one there is that, you know, I'm pretty sure most of these are done in cooperation with the local government. Uh, and, you know, seeing cooperation with Russia on spying is kind of interesting. Hmm. But anyway. Uh, they said uh, in 2008, it consisted of over 700 servers. Wow, and that's in 2008. You can only imagine it's expanded yeah. from there, right? Exactly. Uh, XCSOR allows an incredibly broad surveillance of people based on perceived patterns of suspicious behavior. Uh, it is possible, for instance, to query the system to show the activity of all people based in, on their location, nationality, and websites visited. For example, one of the slides displays a, a search thing called Germans in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, which uh, shows uh, an analyst querying X key score for all individuals who are currently in Pakistan but are visiting a specific German language message board. Mm-hmm. And my rough and understanding is is that analysts can go even further. They can say, oh, they could go specifically. They could so they could say, show me all individuals in the Seattle area that Googled for the word Obama and have also had an email about how Obama, you know, something about Obama. Like you can go Googled yep. and emailed and location. Like you can you there's a so the, the thing about X key score is. It is a series of selectors is what they call them. And the, the, all these yeah. criteria are available, and you have selectors that you choose from, and X Keyscore exposes that information. Yep. And it basically makes it searchable. Uh, the sheer amount of uh, communication that X Keyscore processes, filters, and queries is stunning. Around the world, when a person gets online to do something, say write an email or post on a social network or browse the web or play a video game, there's a decent chance that the internet traffic uh, that their device sends and receives is getting collected and processed by one of the uh, hundreds of X-Keyscore servers that are scattered across the globe. Uh, In order to make sense of such a massive and steady flow of information, analysts working for the NSA, as well as the partner spy agencies in the Five Eye countries, have written uh, thousands of snippets of code to detect different types of traffic and extract useful information, and basically making up tags like you would if you were, you know, organizing your photos or hmm. or any other giant pile of of media. Hmm. And so instead of actually, you know, while they're capturing all the information, like all of the raw packets, they're basically classifying them and sorting them and tagging them so that they can search and find the specific bits they're looking for or find specific patterns that they're looking for. So uh, <clears throat> according to documents dating uh, up to 2013, uh, the system automatically detects if a given piece of traffic is an email. If it is, the system tags it as, you know, if it's from Gmail or uh, Yahoo or whatever, or if it contains an airline itinerary, then they, it gets a special tag. So they can easily search, show me everybody who's flying from here to here today, right? If they've got their email uh, from their airline, went to their Gmail or Yahoo. Uh, if it's encrypted uh, with PGP or if the sender's language is, you know, if the email's written in 
Arabic or English or where the person's from, even if, you know, even if they are from an Arabic country but they're speaking English, they can tag it kind of both ways. Uh, and then they use a, a highly specialized system to, uh, yeah. So that you might expect that they're using some kind of highly specialized system uh, to manage all of this, but it turns out it's actually really simple. So XKeyScore is a piece of Linux software that's typically deployed on a Red Hat Enterprise Linux server. Hey-o. Uh, it uses the Apache web server <laughs> and stores the collected data in a MySQL database. Oh. Uh, file system is a clustered file system, and the nodes access it over NFS and use the AutoFS service to auto-mount the shares. Hey, nice. Uh, schedule tasks are handled by Cron. System administration is done over SSH. How did we get this uh, much detail, use, Alan? And then they use tools such as rsync and vim and so on. Wow. It's standard Linux stuff. Uh, well, I guess all this information is in the stuff Snowden stole. Okay. Right? Uh, they also use a comprehensive command line uh, tool that they use to manage the software. Hmm. Uh, the security of the system is not as good as you might imagine, though. Uh, analysts connect to XKeyScore over HTTPS using standard web browsers such as Firefox. Internet Explorer is not supported. Uh, hmm. Analysts log into the system using either a username and password or using public key authentication. I guess maybe SSL search or something. Um, however, the problem, uh, you know, obviously they don't, so they don't have two-factor authentication on logging in to query people's data and so on, right? So what you do is you steal the uh, login of the person that sits, you know, a couple cubicles over from you at the NSA and do your searches you're not supposed to be doing as them instead of as yourself and so on. Anyway, uh, when system administrators log into XKeyScore servers to configure them, they appear to use a shared account using the name Opper as an operator. Uh, this means that changes made by an administrator don't get logged as by which administrator, just an administrator made this change. So if one administrator does something malicious on an XKeyScore server, they just log in as the Opera user and do it, it's possible that the digital trail of what is done doesn't lead back to a specific administrator. And so they don't actually know who did it. Which is funny because this is exactly uh, what's being described in the uh, Tom Clancy novel I'm reading at the moment. Oh, really? Yes. It's like uh, the uh, well, actually, in the Tom Clancy novels, they're talking about the default domain administrator, hmm. and you know, at the NSA, you know, you have you're supposed to have a separate account for each administrator, but everybody that's an I, a, a superman probably knows the password for the administrator account on your Windows domain, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, diverging from reality there. Anyway, <clears throat> they say there appears to be. Uh, Another way, an ill-intentioned system administrator may be able to cover their tracks. When an analyst wishes to query XKeyScore, they do it. They log in over the web interface and use their browser and do the searches. And in that case, the searches are logged, and this creates an audit trail. Uh, so the system, you know, makes sure that users aren't doing overly broad searches or trying to pull up, you know, information on people they know or something, right? Because we've heard about abuses like that from the NSA before, where they're spying on relatives or uh, girlfriends or whatever, right? Uh, system administrators, however, are able to log into the over SSH and run the SQL queries directly. And documents indicate that administrators have the ability to query the SQL database and there's no audit trail at all. So rather than using the query logging hmm. or something that's built into hmm. SQL, yeah. they're doing the query, the logging in the web app. So if you go around the web app, then your queries aren't logged. So... That's worthless. <laughs> so the system's not very well designed. Yeah. And it's not very well scaled. You know, it's like, I wonder if they, you know, if they had just heard of Sphinx, the uh, full text search engine for MySQL that allows you to more easily 
search MySQL databases for human text and so on. Uh, I used it once. I was building a search engine for an online store, and it was an SQL database, and then we used Sphinx on top of it, and it definitely improved uh, searchability and stuff. But it ba- basically, because it's all based on you know standard uh, LAMP stack, basically, yeah. Um, you know, they probably could have done a much better job using some existing open source stuff instead of writing write everything from scratch. But you know, like we've talked about many times before, you know, even the NSA seems to suffer from not invented here syndrome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had to roll their own solution, didn't they? Well, of course, they couldn't yeah. tell anybody. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they say, when data is collected by an XKeyScore field site, it is processed locally and ultimately stored in the MySQL database at the site. Uh, XKeyScore supports a federated query system, which means that an analyst can uh, conduct a single query from the central XKeyScore website, and it will communicate over the internet to all the field sites and run the query elsewhere or everywhere at once. So this question's, you know, if I so if I'm on the web interface and I'm doing a query. How is it connecting to the SQL servers at the remote locations? Are they encrypting that properly? And, you know, where does that get logged? And maybe it should get logged at both places instead of only one. Hmm. And so Mm -hmm. Uh, Your traffic is analyzed and will probably match a number of their different classifiers. Uh, But the most specific classifier is the one they'll use to tag your traffic so that they can find it in the searches. Uh, Eventually, usually after about three to five days, the complete capture of all your actual data will be deleted to make room for new traffic. Uh, but the metadata that matches these tags might be kept for 30 to 45 days mm. so they can do better pattern analysis sure, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if they have certain um, uh, classifiers they have that just say, don't store this. Like, maybe. oh, that's torrent traffic. Let's not write it down. Yeah, maybe. But I also think they have like crazy egregious ones like, is encrypted store? Doesn't matter. Yeah. Exactly. Uh you know they def- they definitely have classifiers that detect PGP encrypted emails, mm-hmm. and it kind of makes me wonder. Like, I wonder if we should just be less specific about dash dash dash, dash start PGP encrypted email. Right, dash, right. Dash. Yeah, maybe we shouldn't even say that. Yeah, or write regular email and it's got a picture attached that contains it. The yeah, binary. Yeah, there you anyway. go. Yeah. Uh, anyway, they um, <clears throat> say so this is done using uh, dictionaries of rules called app IDs, uh, fingerprints, and micro plugins, and these are written uh, in a custom programming language called Genesis. Uh, each of these can be uh, identified by a unique name that resembles a dictionary tree, such as mail slash webmail slash gmail, or chat slash yahoo, or botnet slash black energy bot slash command slash flood. Right, so they can identify the packet that is actually a botnet operator instructing their botnet to flood somebody. Which is interesting way. Uh, it's like it seems like uh, the NSA should then be able to tell us uh, who's running all these botnets. <laughs> Yeah, and they'd have to reveal the, their sources and means, potentially. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they say, one key document detailed X key scores, app IDs, and fingerprints listed several revealing examples. For example, Windows updates uh, is update underscore service slash Windows. Uh, and normal web requests are HTTP slash get. Uh, X key score can automatically detect, uh, like, air blue travel itineraries. They'll show up as travel slash air blue. And, you know, anything from an iPhone web browser shows up as browser slash cell phone slash iPhone and so on. Uh, to tie it all together, you know, if an Arabic speaker logs into a Yahoo email address, XKeyScore will store that as huh. mail slash Yahoo slash login uh-huh. because they probably will have captured his actual username and password because they were getting the data unencrypted from, or after it's decrypted from Yahoo. Yeah. 
And so they have your actual username and password so they can go into your account and do stuff that they want. Or, you know, a lot of people reuse passwords. So if you have their plain text <laughs> password for the Yahoo email, you can probably go in and, and get it elsewhere. Plus, if you have their email, you can reset the password and on and on and on. Uh, you know, this stream of traffic will match the mail slash Arabic fingerprint uh, as well as the mail slash Yahoo fingerprint and the mail slash Yahoo slash YMBM, which is actually detecting the Yahoo browser cookie. So they can actually use this to tie HTTP requests together as well. Right? They can follow you across all the different Yahoo sites by uh, logging out. This Yahoo right. cookie is this email address. Right. And then they can follow everything else that Yahoo cookie did. Now, when you apply that to bigger ones like the, uh, you know, the advertising network cookies that follow you across many different sites, they can really tie together a history of where you've been. Uh, this is sometimes the Genesis programming language that they came up with for the analysts to write stuff, since not all the analysts are programmers. Uh, is largely relies on Boolean logic and regular expressions to just you know match stuff, uh, and is you know that's how they detect certain types of traffic. But if you have more advanced cases, uh, for example, certain botnets and so on are much more complicated. Uh, you know they try to hide so it's, it looks a lot more like the regular stuff. Uh, then the, the one side puts it that. Power users can drop into a C++ uh, mini application to express themselves. So app IDs or fingerprints that are written in C++ are called micro-plugins. And basically, they get fed the raw data, and then they apply tags to it. Basically, huh. You can do anything by just writing it as C++. Yeah. That's, that's very customizable. Yeah. So most of this information we got is based on Snowden leaks. And some of these documents are from 2008, look some of them are from 2013. But look at this, Alan. They advertise, there's an app for that. Create your own. They're playing on common parlance. Like, yep. they are so... Well, the, a lot of what we got were uh, slide decks. And right, you can imagine the type of people that go around giving these... Good um, point. Good point. PowerPoint presentations. Yeah. yeah. Like managers and so yeah, on. Yeah, 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 it, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. And, and they're talking to other manager type people and it's like, you're yeah, right, you're right. bureaucracy. I should, and those are exactly the kind of people that get on my nerves. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but based on, you know, a, a lot of the stuff we have is from 2008 and only some of it's from 2013. If XKeyScore development has continued at a similar pace over the last six years, it's likely considerably more powerful today. <clears throat> Absolutely, unquestionably, undoubtedly. I mean, just the processing power, storage, and RAM, and bandwidth has improved so much. Yep. That, it's, that's unquestionably true, in my opinion. I'm very surprised they didn't have to use BSD to handle that level of traffic. There it is. There it is. You know. <laughs> well, maybe they are now, right? Maybe they are now. <laughs> I don't. Well, think- I know other other companies build appliances to analyze traffic that are based on FreeBSD to. To do this, uh, maybe you know these say, are two thousand two thousand and eight. Alan uh, ZFS wasn't mainlined in FreeBSD right. in two thousand and eight. You know, you know, you know. Yes, it was. Oh, it's just, it I was. It was. It just. It wasn't. It's I was trying to give you a reason. Nice I was thing. trying to give you an excuse. But yeah, mostly. Uh, you know, but there. The other thing is, you know, there were commercial products they could have bought that probably done most of this mm-hmm. and would have probably had fewer security holes. Like maybe back in but, the day, this was the hotness though. Apache two thousand and eight. You know. Before then, because they built yeah. this before then. Hopefully, they're using Nginx now. Because when these slides came out, this system was well built. So these slides would be based on something they built years beforehand. So then right. you kind of make sense but a little bit. We, we definitely see that the system they have is not that well built. They probably could have done a lot more with less hardware yeah. if, if they had designed the system better. Maybe that's why there's been so many terrorism attacks since they've been monitored us since before 2001. Maybe that's why, because they're using MySQL and Apache. 
And it's slow. <laughs> All right, Alan, why don't we stop right here and thank IX System. Go to IXSystems.com slash TechStamp. If nothing else, check out that slick, new, enterprise-ready logo. And you also can grab the ultimate guide to buying a new open source server, IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. That supports the TechSnap program, lets them know you heard about it here, and gives you a little bit of a competitive advantage. So if you got to grease the wheels up the chain, you've probably heard about us talk about IX, how we wouldn't use anybody else for our hardware needs. And if you're watching the pre-show, you know what Jupiter Broadcasting's plans are for IX. But maybe you're having a problem convincing people up the chain. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Also, when you're at the IX System site, why not check out their blog and learn about the uh, genesis of the new logo? It looks pretty mm-hmm. slick. What do you think, Alan? Yeah, I understand the, the change. You like it? It's clean. Yeah. It's clean. Very clean. You miss the horns, don't you, Alan? You miss the horns. A L- little bit, but yeah. I understand. <laughs> I can still uh, picture them. I can still picture the horns there, though. Well, because after talking to some people at BSD Can, uh, there are certain companies who won't publicly yep. put the FreeBSD logo beside their logo because of the horns. I worked for one. And so on. I worked for one. I didn't agree with it, uh-huh. but I did work for that company, and uh, we ran into that problem. And uh, you know what? It just it is an issue. Yeah. Just, it is and so I definitely understand IX yeah. doing something yeah. Yeah. like that. Um, but the other nice thing, if you, uh, <clears throat> you know, we've been, you've been trying to convince management, and maybe they won't listen or whatever. Mm-hmm. If you look at that uh, the TechSnap page at IX now, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they've added some stuff going the other direction. Mm. So bef- we've always talked about all the reasons you should use IX, uh, but now they have a list of things uh, that yes. will happen to you if you don't use IX. Yes, I love this. Yeah, boy, isn't that true? Because it really is. They're the anti-experience of all these things. Inaccurate or overinflated quotes, being sold the wrong hardware for your project, poorly built servers, misled deadlines, or missed deadlines, I should say, the frustrations of outsourced tech support, and much more. And you know what? I feel like they have the, they have the gloves on there, because they're, they're better yeah. than that, even. They're better than the oh, even, yes. yeah. Because, so you know, uh, that's, that's the, you know, even though IX is going to take my server and run it for three days to make sure everything works before they ship it to me, which will save me a ton of headache and probably save my deadline. Um, they also still guarantee that if I order it by then, it will ship by this date. Right? And so I know that I'm going to get my hardware in a reasonable amount of time. Whereas you order from some other place and they're like, yeah, eventually we'll build it and ship it to you. We don't know when. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, really? Or, or worse, they'll say, oh, yeah, it'll ship, you know, this is in stock. It'll ship in two or three days. Oh, turns out we didn't actually have that one and we had to order from the supplier and they're taking a while. And 21 days later, it's like, well, it finally arrived at our warehouse and we'll now ship it to you. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, Aah. I needed this server yesterday. It's it's really like – it's it's like no other experience. There was a period of time in my uh, IT career where I was about a three-year – maybe four-year stretch where I had one rep in a hardware capacity that I worked with. And, man, this guy got me. Like he got me. He got my clients. He understood what I was trying to deliver to them. And and it was amazing. I had a great connection with this hardware representative for a company. And after three or four years – you know, as all these things do, it disappeared. Uh, IX offers that only they offer it in a way where, like, they're there for the long term. And they, and they do it at a company-wide level. Like, this guy that I got, this rep that I got, he was, like, the standout guy in the company. And I didn't want to let go of him because I finally mm-hmm. got a good rep. And, oh, my God. Like, like I, I would call this guy up and I would just bullshit with this guy just to keep him happy because he made my life so much better because he was one of the good guys and when he was gone that sucked 
So yeah. I, I really I, I implore you, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. If you've ever had a connection like that with a vendor that made your job as a system administrator easier, that's ixsystems at every single level. And they're really good at what they do. And you can trust them. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And a big thank you. IX Systems for sponsoring yeah, the TechSnap if, program. If you're really worried about you know them being around or whatever, you know you have to realize that IX has been around <laughs> since 1991. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It took me a while to figure it out because I would get like I had vendors that would sell me like uh, so we're in you know I'm in Seattle and there's a really nice really nice uh, um, um, uh, uh, basketball. Uh, um, um, like they have box office suites they would send me to. Like they would just like, yep. like really nice stuff. Like that was really sweet, but it wasn't actually delivering the end result of the product I needed. Like there was still a disconnect between the sales and delivering on a technical product that answered our needs. And 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 that's where IX has sort of closed that gap. Like the people you speak to, they're never wasting your time. You're always going to get to a solution that you need. I think it's pretty yep. great. All right, Mr. Jude, are you ready for our next story? This next one's a good yes. one, too. Uh, I don't know what Too to make of it other than uh, it's more DDoS attacks and uh, more shenanigans. Just fill me in. Yep. Right. So I, I basically made a, a, a top-level headline and then broke it up into Yeah, two I loved it. Like, like, basically, home routers have totally failed. <laughs> yes. Home routers are full of fail. <laughs> uh, so the first story is that home routers that still support RIP v1, which is a uh, routing protocol, that was originally came out in 1988 and was deprecated in 1996, but some home routers still support it for whatever reason, um, are being used in a DDoS reflection attack. So basically, the bad guys will send a small packet to your router and spoof their IP address because sure. it's a UDP packet. And so your router will make up a big response and send it back, except for it goes to the victim instead of the attacker. And so they only send you a small amount of traffic and cause you to send out a larger amount. And so they can do that to a whole bunch of routers at once. And, you know, basically the, the denial of service attack they could have done was this big. But by doing that against a whole bunch of these routers, the one that the, the victim receives is this big. Ah. Right? And it just amplifies the Huge, attack. Huge, yeah. Uh, yeah. Because it's, uh, our, uh, RIP1 is a UDP protocol and doesn't support any type of authentication, right? It was meant to be used inside... Um, like private networks. It was never meant for the internet. Uh, so it uses UDP and there's no authentication or anything. So you just send the request and it sends back the response and doesn't care that you're uh, sending it with a fake from address. And so, since the majority of these sources sent packets predominantly of uh, about 500 bytes, uh, it's pretty clear as to why they're leveraged for attack purposes. An attacker discovers a source, it's possible that this vector uh, has the potential to create a much larger attack than what we've observed thus far. Uh, you know, there's lots of devices that are um, uh, have RIP enabled that haven't been used yet. And so we're only expected to get worse at this point. Uh, researchers at Akamai's Prolexic Security Engineering and Research Team uh, put out an advisory about the attacks because uh, they saw the first one in May, uh, uh, May 16th, and that one reached uh, 13 gigabits per second, which is pretty big considering it's uh, made up of home routers, right? Akamai said that uh, it found 53,693 devices that respond to RIP v1 queries in a scan it conducted, uh, but in the latest denial of service attack, there were only 500 unique sources. So, you know, obviously there's... Uh, a hundred times as many devices available just that they found. Wow. And none of them use any authentication. Wow. 
Uh, Akamai specifically identified the Netopia 2000 and 3000 series routers as the biggest culprits, still running the vulnerable ancient uh, RIP v1 routing protocol. Uh, but they said that uh, they found 19,000 uh, Netopia routers that responded to the scans they conducted. They also noted that uh, ZET routers and uh, the TP-Link TD8000 series routers oh, also that's a responded. Big one. That's a big one. Is it? Okay. TP-Link, yeah, uh, they're big. Well, TP-Link is big, but I don't know about the TD8000. Oh, I know yeah. their current models are like WDR. I'll see if I can find something. numbers. Yeah, I know TP-Link is big. Yeah, TP-Link is big. I just don't know what that, how popular that specific uh, model of router mm-hmm. they had, mm-hmm. the TD8000. Mm-hmm. It's not the series of models that uh, I've been modifying and putting FreeBSD on. <laughs> That's the one you care about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it doesn't matter because I, I was erasing their software, so it wouldn't have the vulnerability anyway. <laughs> Uh, but they say most of those Netopia routers are uh, being issued to AT&T cu- customers, specifically U.S. Bell South and Megapath. Uh, so people have these routers not by choice, but because it's one AT&T mm-hmm. gave them. And, uh, you know, they're being used in these attacks. Uh, most people, uh, almost, most home routers I've ever seen do support RIP, uh, but it's usually either off or not facing the internet side. Uh, so it's kind of sad to see there there is a bunch where it is facing the internet side. Yeah, but considering it's been a dead protocol since 1996, uh, it's kind of bad to see those still happening. Yeah, but you know, normally RIP was only really used if you were like a small business and you had two routers and you needed them to communicate or something. But even then, you would probably just do a static route or something. It's just yeah. Uh, so they they talk about things you should do. If you still use RIP for some reason, you should stop. You know, upgrade to a newer version of RIP that has at least like MD5 authentication or something. Or, you know, apply an access list so only accept RIP queries from other routers you actually expect okay, to get Okay, that seems from. reasonable if you're going to have to use it for some reason. Yeah. I don't know. It's like most people still know a little bit about RIP because they, you know, it's the first writing protocol yeah. you usually learn in your Cisco class just because it's so simple. Yep. Uh, but, yeah. Don't use it. <sighs> okay. Okay. Yep. You know, you know, so I now think... now we got a separate story. <laughs> I think, uh, I think I could, I could answer, I, I feel like I, we could answer 100 feedback uh, questions we get uh, with this one. All right. So, the separate story, Alan. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, so, home routers used to host malware. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Symantec has published a research paper on the Dyer malware, D-Y-R-E, uh, and they found that the cheeky thing they're doing here to make it harder to block the normally you know you send a spam phishing attack or inject in a website a url to download the malware mm. and usually that's kind of some kind of like redirector they can keep moving around and then they'll point to different locations where they hosted the um the virus files mm-hmm. but those always get taken down and that's kind of difficult to you know keep your virus available right so these guys got smart and have started infecting routers and making them host the, the infected file i knew it and so they just infect thousands of routers and copy this file there, and then they can just point people to different URLs. And Come on, those man. ones are much I, harder to get shut down. I totally called this like 30 episodes ago. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, with a, if you're using a regular like uh, website hosting provider or server hosting provider, uh-huh. they're all set up to get these things and block the website or take them down or notify people and, and get the virus turned off. Right. But... Can you imagine Comcast getting 100 requests? That, oh, turn this user's internet off because they're serving up a virus. Yeah, right. That's, that's, yeah. that's a DDoS almost. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, 
The interesting thing here is the routers that are affected. Hmm. It seems that they specifically targeted higher-end routers that more like power users and net admins and small businesses would have. Uh, specifically, the Microtech and the Ubiquity AeroS. Uh, so these are not your, you know, your fifty-dollar buy at Best Buy type of routers. These are ones you specifically bought to because you know it's a really strong. A uh, high-end router that's not going to suffer from these problems. <laughs> damn it! And Linux-based operating system. Oh come on! Damn it! Ah, <laughs> uh, jeez! Don't tell Noah; he's going to cry a little bit. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I know lots of people that highly recommend the Microtex because you know you, it's you get in there and it's it's like a real operating system and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they give you the power at a, a good price. But because they have that, they have enough storage that you can run a web server on them. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that is that is definitely a line you walk, right, as, the devi- as these devices get more features. Well, especially, you know, ones that have, uh, you know, the Microtech and the Aero, uh, Ubiquiti AeroS are also ones you would have if, if you have Wi-Fi and you wanted to have a captive portal. And so they have, like, a web server to, serve, to add your logo and stuff to that captive portal. Hmm. And so that makes them vulnerable to, of course. to being used to host stuff. Oh, jeez. Uh, right. uh, we have seen literally hundreds of wireless access points and routers connect uh, in relation to this botnet. Uh, uh, researchers from Fujitsu's uh, research line have uh, uncovered this one. Uh, um, the consistency in which the botnet is communicating with compromised routers is related to both distribution and communication leads us to uh, believe well-known vulnerabilities are being exploited in the firmware which allows this to call uh, to occur. Specifically, Campbell says, it is not clear why so many routers appear to be implicated in this botnet. He says, perhaps the attackers are merely exploiting routers with default credentials, like UBNT is the default username and password on the Ubiquiti AeroS routers, unless you've changed it. <laughs> okay. And, you know, if you install a router at a hotel or a coffee shop, what are the chances they're going to actually have a good password on it? Hmm. Worse, uh, Fujitsu also found a disturbing number of the systems in the botnet had the Telnet port open to the internet. So they could be remotely managed, unencrypted. Okay. Why does anyone still use Telnet? Don't no use Telnet. Uh, they're idiots. Don't use Telnet. Yeah, I feel like uh, we should have a shirt. SSH is for. We need a shirt that says, patch your S, and on the back it says, stop using Telnet. Right? And maybe FTP in parentheses. <laughs> or just, Telnet is murder. <laughs> <laughs> Telnet kills children. Stop using it. <laughs> We could come up with some sort of like some sort of spin on that. I think we can make that work. <laughs> well, because you know, fur is murder, so telnet is murder. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Stop murdering security. Yeah. Uh, wow, Alan. Any other thoughts on this story? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> well, I like your final thought on it. Actually, I think that's probably a pretty good place to stop yes. right there. <laughs> I don't know. My thought is, I'm glad I bought that TP Link and reformatted it to FreeBSD, where I know every service that's on yes, it. Yes, right. I right. know it's not like a Cisco. Right. There's not an SSH key hidden mm-hmm. somewhere that someone could log in with. Right. Or uh, in the roundup, we have another Cisco one yeah. where they actually have an account with a default password that's the same on every device, <sighs> and you could log in and it has root access. Yeah. Which is much, much worse than an SSH key. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. all somebody has to do is brute force that one password and they have access to every one of them. I feel like we need a moment of zen, Alan. We need a moment of serenity. Serenity now. Let's stop and talk about Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com. Techsnap.ting.com. You know, if you go to techsnap.ting.com, you're going to get a special discount off your first Ting device. Or 
if you act right now, well, I would do this. Personally, if you're in the IT business, you've probably got a tablet, you've probably got a laptop, and you probably need connectivity. Go get a Ting MiFi device. So they've got GSM and CDMA networks, so you're going to be able to get good connectivity regardless of your location in the US of A. But also, you only pay for what you use. So you're only going to have to pay for when you have to kick in that data service to save the day. Isn't that nice? And if you're in contract services, just bill them for it. Go to techsnap.ting.com. If you're in a small business, if you've got three to five to ten mobile devices or more, boy, especially if you have more than ten, Ting is going to save you money for your mobile business. Uh, It's really easy to give several lines out to folks, even if you don't have a lot of money. And here's why. Ting is only pay for what you use mobile service. It's a flat $6 for each individual line. And then you just pay for your usage on top of that. So Ting just takes your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. Whatever you fall into, whatever bucket-wise, like whatever cost that is, that's, that's just what you pay. So for me, I only used 100 minutes of talking time across three lines. So like my bill is around 30 bucks. Like it's not even – it's like higher end 30. It's like almost 40 for three – actually four phones. For four phones. For four phones. Four smartphones. Because we're very savvy. We use Wi-Fi very intelligently. We're all very tech savvy. We know what's up. And if we have to spend a little bit of time out on the road and we're racking up minutes one month because we're making phone calls, we're not on Wi-Fi, big deal. Honestly, I spend 10 to 11 months making Wi-Fi calls. So if one freaking month out of the year, I spend a little bit more for voice calls, Ting still works out to be demonstrably cheaper than any other of the monopolies out there. So I want you to go to techsnap.ting.com and check them out. They're mobile like you've never seen before. They really are changing up the game. They make mobile make sense because they give you tools to manage the devices. They have no hold customer service. You call them at one 855 and every single device you buy is freaking unlocked. And what I love about Ting is they're hungry. Like, having mobile and dominating like this is not enough. They're also rolling out fiber services. We've talked about this, and now they have a video. Ting wants to bring what they're doing in mobile to fiber internet as well. And I think that's genius. So I want to play a little bit of it for you. And look at this. Oh, my gosh. And, and one of the nice things that Ting has uh, on their uh, fiber internet service is like, they bring a lot of the Ting uh, features to it, like their nice... Uh, this is the like culmination the nice touch right of here. many months of work between Ting and the city. We've got the community media center setting up to stream. They had to live. fight a pretty, pretty big political Jeff battle for this too. Operation, who's getting ready to do the demo? We've got caterers from Westminster setting up food. We have business people coming who are excited to see how this is going to impact workforce development. We've got residents here who can't wait to have a gig at their house, and so it's just a really exciting event because little little Westminster here is you know the newest Ting town. The city of Westminster had a really innovative plan around how they wanted to go about building a fiber network in their city. So what they did was build the network themselves and look to partner with a service provider to provide services on top of that. They wanted to make sure that the residents and the businesses here in Westminster had great internet service on top of this fantastic asset that they were building. This is the next, or this is the current great network revolution. It's infrastructure like roads. It's infrastructure like the energy grid. You know, somebody was just telling me, one of the city councilmen was saying, well, we don't have a major highway here. I said, this is your highway. And we look forward to working with you to deliver the benefits of broadband to your community. Thank you very much and congratulations. 
Man, I want Ting to bring that to where I'm at. Could you imagine doing these podcasts over Ting Fiber? Wow. Well, in the meantime, go to techsnap.ting.com and try them out for your mobile service. They have a savings calculator there, and I invite you to try that. I've saved over $2,000 in two years. You could put that in the savings account. You could buy a new laptop every two years. TechSnap.ting.com. And like, like if you're like Alan, and maybe you don't even live in the U.S., but you're going to travel here from time to time, look at the first few row of devices. First of all, you get a $9 SIM card, $47 feature phone, or you know, spend a little more, you get an $88 feature phone. That's the uh, Kyocera Kona that has some really – actually, honestly, if I, if I didn't have a smartphone, that would be the feature phone I get for $88, unlocked, no contract. TechSnap.ting.com. And a huge thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. You guys rock. Okay, Alan. So uh, we have uh, we have so much more to get to. We've covered the home router news. We've covered all of the other features and uh, all of the other links to everything Alan's talked about, which is a bunch of stuff this week. Including, I want to I want to point people to. I don't know. You probably mentioned it. Maybe I just missed it. But the semantic research paper. I want to point people to yes. that in the show notes. All of that. The links over at uh, jupiterbroadcasting.com. Look for episode two hundred and twenty one of the TechSnap program, and uh, then go grab yourself uh, some of those links because uh, Alan busted that out like a pro. And while you're over at the Jupiter Broadcast Casting website. Why don't you check out episode ninety six of the BSD Now program, Lost Technology? What's episode ninety six about, Alan? Uh, we interview uh, a Japanese NetBSD developer, and he's showing like resurrecting many year old um, Windows phones and reinstalling NetBSD on them. <laughs> and it's actually interesting. It's like, hey, I have a computer running a, a Unix operating system, and it's got a key, a physical keyboard, and a screen. It's like this is this useful as a Raspberry Pi, except for it's all contained in this in a phone sized device. Right? Neat. I have you know, it's like a raspberry other ones that like tablets and stuff, it's like, oh, this is a Raspberry Pi with a built in screen. That's so much more useful than my Raspberry Pi. That's pretty cool. That's yeah, pretty so cool. So he showed off a bunch of cool devices and talked about uh what they're using them for in Japan and so on. Episode 96 of the BSD Now program. This is the midway point of the TechSnap program. So you could go get the HD version of that, and you'd probably have it done by the time this show's done, and you'd have more Alan Jude and a little Chris Moore in your face. But with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website or even better, start a thread in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. But before we get to the emails this week, I wanted to mention that's something that's coming up very soon. If you go to meetup.com slash jupiterbroadcasting, we're going to have a meetup at OSCON 2015. Uh, actually, you can come say hi to us at OSCON. We'll be there Wednesday, July 22nd. And afterwards, if you're in the Portland, Oregon area, really, if you're just ever anywhere in the area, we're coming down from the uh, Washington area, uh, meet up with us at the uh, Spirit of 77 Bar. Go to meetup.com, meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting, and let me know. Right now, I've got five people going. If that number goes up, I'll actually schedule. Uh, so Spirit of 77 Bar has the whole upstairs available for renting if I get a few dozen people or something like that. Meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. If you're in the Oregon, Portland area-ish, in that Pacific Northwest area on July 22nd, come say hi to Noah and I. We'll be at OSCON, and then we'll go into Spirit of 77 for dinner. Meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. I'd love to see some of the TechSnap crew there. But, Alan, with that plug done... Why don't we get to our first email from Peter? He comes in with a ZFS question, starting off the round of ZFS questions this week. He says, hi, Alan mm-hmm. and Chris. I have a problem with this Windows server uh, 
It's 2011 Essentials. I didn't even know 2011 Essentials was a version. Uh, when I yeah. set up a few, I set up a few years ago with an i7 rig. Now, uh, here's it's a long story, Alan. But he's got these drives that are 4K sector drives. You familiar with these? Right, but when he, uh, yeah, uh, almost most newer hard drives or mm-hmm. bigger hard drives now are because you can't not do that with larger hard drives. Uh, but so he's saying uh, Server 2011, and when he built it, he didn't know apparently one of the drives. Apparently, the two drives are not identical. Uh, but one of the drives is 4K and one wasn't. Yeah. But the operating system didn't know, right? Because they all pretend to do uh, 512-byte sectors for backwards compatibility. Um, and then apparently he installed a Windows update, and uh, now Windows says it doesn't support 4K drives, which is weird. It's like, why would they issue a, f- uh, a Windows update that detects true 4K drives and then just, what, says, sorry, we don't support that drive? <laughs> That's weird. Anyway, he's saying it broke his dynamic mirror, because uh, I guess, yeah, if it detects it and tries to have it 4K sectors, like these two drives aren't alike, so you can't mirror them. Uh, but apparently, I uh, downgraded the OS disk to 3 megabytes a second. Uh, well, apparently, the other drive uh, that's offline is capable of 70 megabytes a second. I don't know what hard drive you could possibly have that can only do 3 megabytes a second. 3 megabytes doesn't seem like a, right. a drive. Now, if, you're, if you're trying to write to a 4K sector drive in 512-byte sectors, it will be that slow. Because, right, picture you have these 4K blocks and it's actually a 512K block. If you update one of them, what it actually has to do is read the whole 4K hmm. into its little memory, mm-hmm. write, overwrite the 512 bytes that you're changing, and then write that whole 4K back to the drive. And then, so if you write, you know, four 512-byte sectors at a time, you're going to have to do that four separate times. And basically, you just wrote 2K to your drive, uh, but you just wrote, you know, uh, 32 kilobytes to the drive. And so it's making it take that much longer. Yeah. Uh, So that might be part of the problem. Um, It's really hard to say. But anyway, what he's getting to is that uh, in the upcoming weeks, he wants to do an upgrade and wants to build a new max RAM uh, server with Intel Gigabit Ethernet and install Ubuntu and the latest version of ZFS and set up a three-disc mirror uh, and w- then he'll then attach a Windows 2012 server via iSCSI and that was where he'll store his databases and files. Uh, and he says it will directly connect to the ZFS storage machine on a separate Intel NIC uh, that goes directly to the Windows box. So there won't be a switch or anything in between. It'll be basically a SAN. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says, uh, do you know... Uh, if I can use three uh, 4K sector drives to run properly without any performance issues with ZFS, or should I try and find some like 500 gig drives that are actually 512-byte drives? So what do you think? So ZFS has support. Now, uh, again, the way you detect the 4K is, is kind of hinky because drives like to pretend to be 512, so they still work with Windows XP and mm-hmm. so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so in ZFS, the best way to do it is there's a, a SysETL, that's the uh, what's called the min a shift, uh, and the default is nine, and two to the power of nine is five twelve. But if you set it to twelve, because two to the power of twelve is forty ninety six, it will use four K sector blocks, and this allows you to force all of your entire pool to use four K sector blocks, even if some of your drives are four K and some aren't. And depending on what you're doing, we recommend you do that, even if you know your drives are five twelve byte drives. Because in the future, if you want to stick a 4K, drive, a 4K sector drive in to replace one of those drives when it dies, uh, 
you won't be able to if the sector sizes don't match. Oh, so by using brilliant. If you, if you use 4K, 4K will work on a 4K drive or a 512 byte drive. Yeah, right. But if Get you future use you. if you use 512 byte sectors on a 4K sector drive, it'll be really really slow. That's the key answer. Because right it's going to have to do that read write modify yeah. every time you want to write. Yeah, right. Because you because you, basically 4K is the smallest block you can modify. If you try to modify a fraction of it, you have to read it, modify it, and write it again, and so on. Yep. All right. That answers that. Really. So, yes. So uh, if you set it's uh, vfs.zfs.min underscore a shift, uh, it will force it to use uh, 4K sectors. Okay. I don't know how to do that on Ubuntu off the top of my head, but it will be easy enough to do. Yeah, I bet you can. Just it. look into like setting the a shift, and uh, if you set it to 12, it'll use 4K sector blocks. Now the downside to that is uh, on, on mirrors you won't have a problem. Uh, on RAID Z, because of uh, the way RAID Z works and mm. padding, mm-hmm. um, if you're trying to run a Z-Vault to do iSCSI and you know, it's a database and you want to use really small sectors, if you do, say, um, if you're doing a Postgres database and it has 8K uh, record size for its database, where MySQL is 16K, well, even in MySQL, 16K is the block size it's going to use. When you go to write that to your disk, you're going to break that down into 4K chunks. But because of the way... way the way RAID Z works, uh, your allocations always have to be a multiple of one plus the amount of redundancy. So if you're using a RAID Z2 on, say, six drives, then every allocation has to be a multiple of three, right? Because one plus the two redundant drives you have. And so if you try to write your allocation of, you know, your um, 16K thing and you're going to have four 4K chunks... Uh, and then you're too redundant, and that might divide by six. But depending on your size, you can end up with quite a bit of wasted space because of padding uh, if you're trying to use really small block sizes with really with 4K sector drives. Mm. So for some special types of database, the 512-byte drives uh, might be better. Okay. But for almost all use cases, the 4K drives work very well. So with that in consideration otherwise, yeah. All right. Yeah. So basically set the A-shift when you create the pool, and uh, you can safely use 4K even on 512-byte drives, and it future-proofs you. Nice. All right, Alan. Well, let's not stop the ZFS train because it is full steam mm-hmm. ahead. Tim writes in. He says, I've heard you preach the benefits of using the ZFS file system. Really? Interesting. Huh. Particularly for data protection and redundancy across multiple drives for a while now, and I've implemented this in my home network. Currently, a simple free NAS server with two different pools, a 4 by 2 terabyte drives and a RAID Z1, and 6 2 by 2 terabyte drives and a RAID Z2, being used for different types of storage, particularly separate pools due to being different speeds, 4 off the motherboard, 4 off a slower HPA. And I'm skipping the backup discussion as it's not important to my question. My actual question comes in the fact of I'm rebuilding a small form factor Linux desktop computer build. I move around for weeks at a time occasionally, and this is the computer that comes with me. I currently has four three terabyte drives installed, and I'm experimenting with Linux software RAID. However, I'm considering ZFS for this too. The main thing I want to achieve is besides having its own directories for local use on the desktop, I want some data sets or directories from the FreeNAS server to be synchronized to the desktops such that I can sync probably a couple of terabytes of large media files, Blu-ray rips, old project archives, large encrypted containers, etc. Previously, I very measly accomplished this without any kind of drive pooling or redundancy by copy and pasting the files from the server the night before I had to travel. But redundancy and automation would make my life 
a lot easier. Is this an appropriate use case for ZFS Send and Receive, or would you recommend another solution? Is it okay to go weeks without being connected to the server and then reconnect and sync later? Will I run into compatibility problems using this feature between FreeNAS and Linux? Alan, what are your thoughts for Tim? Uh, so it really depends what he means by sync, but this is exactly what I do at home. Uh, when I do all my FreeBSD development stuff, it, there, I have a, a data set called media slash SVN that sits on my home file server, and it's got all my work in progress in different data sets and so on. And when I'm getting ready to go to Tokyo or Ottawa or Cambridge or, or Sweden or whatever, I'll get up on my laptop and do ZFS send from my file server to my laptop, and now my laptop has the copy. Yeah. And I take it with me, I work on it for a week at the conference, I come home and I sync it back to uh, my home file server. Mm-hmm. And it works great. And yes, ZFS, uh, because ZFS send specifically ignores features, it allows you to do uh, go between different zpool versions and different feature flags and stuff. So any version of ZFS can go to any version of ZFS. Um, now, the key thing here is I'm not modifying the data set on my home file server while I'm not home. So it doesn't, uh, it can't like merge changes. Basically, when I ZFS send from my file server at home to my laptop, when I resync it a week later or weeks later, it hasn't changed on the, the home copy, right? Only the copy on my laptop changed. And if you, you know like, I mean? do you think if it goes like a like weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, weeks won't make a difference, especially if the one at home isn't changing. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I would assume that would probably right, so be like, the case if he's traveling, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So you take a snapshot and you replicate that snapshot, and basically now your laptop's the the live version, right? Mm-hmm. Now the one at home can change, but then uh, when you run on your lap, when you go to sync it, you find the the last time they were the same, which would be that same snapshot that you replicated. And when you sync it from your laptop back to the file server, it will undo anything done on the file server. Now, you have to force it to do that. It won't accidentally delete your files or something. Yeah. Okay. But in order to resync them, you have to undo the changes on one of the two. <clears throat> so only if they, if they fork, you only get to keep one of the two. Uh, or you can clone them and keep both if you really want. But uh, it works great for me for my laptop because yeah, I want to take it with me and when I bring it home, resync onto the file server, and then everything runs off the file server again. Very so good. yes, it works great for taking your data set on the road with you, and I use it all the time. That's nice you've tried it. So there you go. That's the official word on it. All right, this is our last ZFS question for the week. Boston writes in. He says, "Hey gang, mm-hmm. I watch TechSnap for about 150 shows, and it's one of the best podcasts I consume. Hey, how about that? That's Thank great. Uh, it's quite frightening to see TechSnap show without a ZFS questions so for finding one." <laughs> <laughs> well, Boston, don't worry, buddy. Uh, he says, my, uh, my ZFS pool started small with just two one-terabyte disks. At the time, I decided to put them into a mirror. Later, I received one two-terabyte disk and bought another one so I could put them in a mirror and expand my pool. Now I see that purchasing an additional two three-terabyte disks to expand my pool was a mistake. I realized... Not necessarily. The, I real, oh, okay. Here's what he thinks. The biggest downside of a mirror is a failure of two disks in the same VDEV will put the, pull down the whole, will pull down the whole pool. I don't have any space left with my rig for additional disks. To make it more secure, I was thinking of making three pools. So if two of the same disks die, just one pool dies. Do you have any suggestions on how to convert my one six disk pool to a three two disk pool gradually, not needing to migrate all the data off the FreeNAS and back again, essentially? Or better, do you have a better solution? And he also provides you, Alan, if you want a, a current sort of layout of his yes. existing yes. setup. Okay, so um, 
this is usually the kind of setup I recommend because you can buy two drives at a time, whereas if you do RAID Z, you know, you're talking like four or six drives at a time. And so it gives you this flexibility. Um, so th- with the mirrors, what he can do here is he can, um, if he has an extra SATA port but not space, uh, you can do ZPool replace. But otherwise, you could basically pull one of the one terabyte drives and replace it with a new three terabyte drive. And then once it's done resilvering, or uh, if you can connect both the old drive and the new drive at the same time, uh, there's less risk. Because like you said, if one of those disks in the mirror die, if both disks in the mirror die at the same time, you're screwed. So if you pull one of the two out and pop in the, uh, an empty disk and start resilvering and the remaining disk dies, your whole pool's gone. Whereas if you have both disks uh, in there and you attach the seventh disk, uh, maybe it's, it can't fit in the chassis, but it, there's a SATA port free or you do it over USB or however you want to do it, then um, if one of the two disks dies, you still have the other one and you're okay, right? So anyway, he can slowly replace each of those one terabyte drives with three terabyte drive and his pool gets bigger. And then in the future, replace the two terabyte drives with five terabyte drives and basically you can keep ratcheting up okay. his space. Okay. And that works very well. That's why I recommend uh, mirrors for people that want that kind of home style flexibility rather than, you know, I'm going to buy this server as, you mm-hmm. know, put this many drives in it and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, so he's. I can also see his point that yeah, with two older drives in there, you know, if they both die at once, I'm in trouble. You have a couple of options there. Obviously, you can make the mirrors deeper. You can have like three discs in each mirror, and then even if two of them die, you're still okay. But in general, losing both at the same time isn't too bad. It's really up to uh, how you want to do it, um, or how much risk you're willing to take. Um, doing the th- three separate pools can mitigate the risk so now if, if you know one, if both the one terabyte drives die you only lost your one terabyte pool not your two terabyte three terabyte one but at the same time it kind of defeats the point of ZFS which was pooling all that free space together because now you end up with right. oh I have 200 gigs free yeah. in, in pool one 200 gigs free in pool two and 300 gigs free in pool three but I need 400 gigs for this thing and it won't fit in any of them right whereas if it was all in one big pool you have you know all that storage space available in one place. Right, you'd have 700 gigs right. all in one pool. Right. Mm. And it also run, you know, ZFS performs best if you can keep it, you know, at least 20, 25% empty. And now you have to, you know, 25% of each of those three pools adds up to more, right? And you're getting less space efficiency and so on. Uh, so, yeah. If you're worried about the drives, I would look at uh, using uh, ZPool Replace to do an online replacement, right? Rather than ripping one of the drives out and replacing it and resilvering after, uh, if you can do the online replacement, even if that involves what I recommend to Chris with like hmm. seventh drive plugged into the SATA port but hanging out of the side of the case until right. it's done, right? Or if it's connected over uh, eSATA or USB or something to get that extra drive connected so that you can do it without uh, as much risk. iSCSI, and then you could just. Uh, you could do iSCSI to another machine. That That's doesn't, much more complicated. Yeah, okay. But you could do USB eSATA or you know, an extra SATA port that there's just not room to physically mount the drive because you're only going to need it there for you know, a couple hours or a day or two, uh, whatever it takes to resilver all the data, right? And then so if you do the ZPool replace command, it'll copy all the data off the drive you're getting rid of to the new drive, and once it's done, then you disconnect the... Uh, the old drive and mount the new drive properly in the case and uh, you're good to go. Nice. All right, Mr. Jude, our so, last... Yeah, they're, the t- separate pools works fine but has some downsides. Uh, what you've done is actually not bad. 
Uh, if you're worried about the two one terabyte drives dying, then upgrade them to newer drives. And uh, if you can get slightly different drives so that there's mm. less chance of them all dying at once, uh, then that helps. Mm. Let's go on. Uh, you know, with six drives, you know, if you'd done uh, a RAID Z2 of those six drives, now, obviously, you wouldn't have been able to grow it over time. You know, you didn't have all six drives in the beginning when you did it. And, you know, there were all these other considerations. But it would be able to handle any two drives dying. Whereas with the mirror, technically your mirror setup can handle three drives dying as long as they're the right three drives, right? If you lost one from each of the three mirrors, you'd be okay. But if you lose any, if you lose two from any one of the same mirrors, then you're not. So I guess I've kind of actually not answered his question now that I look at it. So his question is, is there a good way to migrate to three separate pools? Uh, well... If you can't fit any more drives in the machine currently, then not really. Hmm. If you had room for the extra drives, even if it's temporarily with the extra SATA ports or whatever, then I, you know, if you got two new three terabyte drives or something, or some set of drives, uh, or if you really want to risk it, you could pull, you know, a three and a two terabyte drive out of your current setup um, and create them as a new pool and just ZFS send some of your data sets over until there's enough room. Uh, you can kind of do that, but. You know, if you built a new pool that had two three terabyte drives in it and you did it striped or something so there's no redundancy, you could probably, you should be able to fit, that would be six terabytes, that would fit all the data you have on your current pool on two drives. And then you could rebuild your current drives into the separate pools and start sending the data back until there was enough room or something. But yeah, you can do quite a bit of dancing, but it's really not going to help you. Yeah. All right, good one. Yeah. All right, so let's do one more question. It's a follow-up from last week. Mr. T to the Z to the V to the I writes in with the uh, DNS transfer question. Remember about transferring domains and changing name servers without uh, causing downtimes? This is brilliant. I love it. He says, hey, guys, regarding last week's questions about migrating a domain to a new provider without email downtime, Hover will set up your DNS before the transfer so you don't have any downtime, but you have to specifically request it. Now, yeah. I love so this. Ask, be like, hey, I'm going to move my domains. Could you let me set up the DNS for them so your servers will be waiting and then when they switch it? Uh, which is yeah. good. If it, it's, it's handy to have if you're... You only, it's only required, though, if your current DNS is hosted by your current registrar that you're getting rid of and they're going to turn it off. Pretty common, right. though. That's pretty common. Yeah, a lot of people do that because yeah. why pay separately for DNS hosting or run your own servers? Right. I happen to run my own servers, so it wasn't an issue when I wanted to transfer. Yeah. But actually, it did bite me. Um... My, one of my uh, the BSD basement domain, I've been run, or no, sorry, not that one of the one of the domains we have at Scale Engine for our resellers doesn't use our name server, so our name isn't on it when you do a who is and so on. Yeah, and so we had uh, GoDaddy doing the hosting, and when we switched it to Gandhi, it stopped working, and I had to go and create the zone over there. Uh, luckily, there was no email on that domain, but yes, uh, this specific issue has bitten me before. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, I'm a big fan of Hover because they're owned by the same folks who own Ting, and they've got a good rep. That's yep. where I've got Jupiter Broadcasting registered through. Yeah, um, so. <laughs> Two Cows knows about domain registration. They were the first people outside of Network Solutions to be allowed to do it. There you go. <laughs> they've kind of got it figured out by now. Uh, if yeah, you'd like to get like your Hover itself, may be fairly new, but the company behind it has been doing domain registration since that was, was a thing. Yeah, there was, there was domain registration. Uh, now, we've got a couple of questions that didn't make into the show, but we'd love to get more. We'd really love to get a lot more. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click that contact link at the top of the site, and then just choose TechSnap from the drop-down. And then, like some sort of magic genie, we're going to answer your sysadmin, technology, system, storage, network, security, hardware-related questions. 
If you only knew how much we charged for these kinds of answers, go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact to submit those to us or go to techsnap.reddit.com. And it's a big part of our show. We dedicate an entire segment to it. So we want your great questions in the next episode of TechSnap. But with all that stuff done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the Tech Snap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the roundup of stories that just didn't quite fit at the top of this here show, but we still want to talk about them and give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And a lot of these links came from our empowered and educated subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. And Mr. Jude, our first story is a follow-up to the OPM hack. You remember this story? Yep. Yeah, it just keeps getting worse. Uh, and now it looks like one of the problems is one of the contractors involved with the OPM hack uh, it wasn't keeping logs. At all, right? Well, if, even if they had, they probably uh, weren't very good at it. No. But they didn't have any logs, and so there's no way to tell what the hell happened. Yeah, you see, that wasn't part of the contract. See, they offered it to the government for a couple extra hundred thou to do logging, and the uh, the gov said, you know, we're not going to pay a couple extra hundred thou for that. And so, you know, they just didn't turn on logging. Didn't turn yep. on logging. What the? F- whatever. All right, Alan, the next yeah, story. Yeah, it's only like everybody's like complete hist- uh, background history check stuff, like medical records. This isn't just an employment check. This is a security background check, which has intense level of detail in it. Alan, if you ask our buddies at Netflix or pretty much anybody else who's in the hipster crowd, they're going to tell you that physical media is dead. However, if you ask Mark Zuckerberg, he might tell you that Facebook's living on Blu-rays. What's going on with this Blu-ray cold storage data center for Facebook? Well, so on Facebook, they get about 900 million new photos posted every day. Yeah. And the truth is that most of these photos uh, will be viewed like eight times. Oh, ouch. And, uh, ouch. Yeah, it's true, though. And, and uh, uh, gr- even ones that are viewed more than that or whatever, they're never going to be viewed very frequently after that. Okay. You know, they're posted, everybody looks at it, and then the chance of someone looking it up again is pretty rare. It's going to happen once a right? month, maybe. Or less than that even. So uh, they have this cold storage system. So they, what they found is that currently the cheapest way to do this is Blu-rays because they can fit something like 128 gigabytes on each Blu-ray. And then they fit like 20 Blu-rays in a little cartridge that's thinner than a hard drive. And then they fill decks with these and then they have heads and it's all magic. Uh, there's actually a video if you want to show it. Oh, really? The link for the video? Yes, there's a I second was... link for that one. Or while I'm digging for that, uh, it's not as cool. But when uh, CD, uh, so do you remember like when CD-ROM uh, writables were new and there was like different, there was CD-ROM, CD-RW, CD-RW yep. Plus, all those different standards and CD-R. Especially r- DVDs as well went through the plus and minus, right? CD-R plus, or DVD plus R and DVD minus R. Yeah. Uh, where's the video at? I'm sorry. Where do, where do I find the video at? It's a second link on the same line in the show notes. Oh, 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 oh. oh. Facebook.com URL. The one I was just talking about before we started. That one, you mean? Well, sorry, uh, there's like three yeah. or four of my stories have two links this You're week. You're a sorry. baller this week, Alan. That's right. I'll load it up. I was just going to say, I'm Geo- uh, before this plays, um, when I worked uh, uh, for a bank, we would actually do something similar with uh, check images. We would store, we would bank on like, these ones are not going to be accessed very often, but we would store them to CD. They weren't CDRWs. They were some other format of CD, like CD, CD RAM or something. 
And, oh, yes, I remember CD-RAM. And, and they would be stored in these, in these systems where a, a robot arm could go grab the disc and load it and then read it for the customer, and they would have a little wait screen for it. So this kind of been playing with us for a long time. All right, here, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll play the Facebook video. This looks fascinating. I'm Tory, Director of Hardware Engineering here at Facebook, and I'm part of a Tiger team who developed our next creation here, a rack-level optical storage solution. Cool. And I'd like to show you a bit of uh, what we've created. So we'll walk around the back and we'll show you the internal mechanism and how this all uh, comes together. Come with me. So some of the key characteristics of this design. First and foremost, the, the rack was built to OCP uh, standards. It has OCP um, dimensions and power uh, configuration. Nice. Uh, so you'll be able to wheel this into any OCP compliant data center and bolt it right up. Uh, the, the rack consists of 24 magazines each magazine holds 36 cartridges. Each cartridge contains 12 Blu-ray discs. Each cartridge is locked, and we have a robotic picker that will go to a specified uh, magazine and then locate a cartridge. It will unlock that cartridge, removing the drawer, and a picker will go down and uh, is able to select a specified disc in that 12-disc arrangement. When it's time to remove the magazines, if we want to put them into an um, even colder archival state, let me walk to the front and show you how that operation takes place. So we've now told the rack to locate a specific magazine. There are actuators on these drawers that will then engage that magazine. The robot then will remove cool. the magazine cool. um, from the rack. Yeah. And once the magazine oh, look at that, is Alan. removed from the rack, I now have access to either the cartridge, if I want to remove a specific cartridge, or I can actually remove a complete magazine and take that magazine, which is FRID'd, to a uh, colder uh, facility. Once I'm done with my operation, the magazine goes back in, and the robot is back in operational state. One of the key elements about the robot is that it consumes a fraction of the power that a normal magnetic spindle solution would. Yeah, I bet. Once in bet cold it state, yeah. it's a virtual zero right. in power consumption. Of course. Waiting for an operation to occur. And once we're retrieving data, we're sub 1,000 watts. So you can see it's a of fraction course, of what yeah. you typically would yeah. spend so in like energy in a data center. What you would normally have in like and two the reliability in the is rack. really in the disaggregated yeah. nature. That makes a lot of sense, actually. So each one of these disks is actually certified for 50 years of operation. You can actually get some disks that are certified up to 1,000 years of reliability. Wow. And because the media is separate from the drives, yeah. if you ever have a drive issue, you simply replace the drive, and you won't have to replace the data huh. within the right. disk. Right. So from a reliability I'm and right operational standpoint, it's uh, quite elegant and efficient. Gosh, Alan, that actually makes a lot of sense. And I wonder maybe if that actually isn't a little applicable to my situation, too. Kind of, yeah. Uh, and so that basically they have this tiering system, right, where the drives is on, like, SSDs, and then as it gets less popular, it goes to hard drives, and as less popular, it goes to DVDs that it can reach, and then later it goes into, like, a, a just a vault where they just, like, so, oh, if we need those DVDs uh, five years from now, we can always go pull them out of the... You know, you know what we need is some sort of open source management solution where somebody like me could offline a bunch of this stuff to Blu-ray. Because, so here, two, two things. 
if if I could do if I if you could just flip a switch and Chris could do anything he wanted in the entire world, I would re, I would keep the ProRes version of every show we ever do, and then ten years down the road, I would release remastered versions that are super high fidelity because we have them in 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 lossless quality, right? That would right. be Chris's dream, where I could be like, buy it, buy it on the, you know, buy this set or re-download the set in a higher resolution because we've kept the we kept the lossless version all this time, and and that would actually be possible with Blu-ray discs. But the part that is not possible is the recalling of it, or like the organizing of it, or the or the automation aspect of it. That would be compl- that would be not that's not available to somebody. We need a solution that sort of bridges that gap right now. Well, without the robotic arm, you know, that would basically involve Rakai writing something on the label right. and sticking it in the container yes. somewhere. That's no good. What, we need, what yeah. we need is, instead of Blu-ray, is like some sort of scale engine solution. Possibly. Yeah. Uh, but then that just makes that all my problem. Exactly. <laughs> well, your, your, bigger problem, sorry, your bigger problem there is how are you going to get your ProRes files to me? You don't have enough bandwidth to upload. You know what, Alan? If you had a cheap enough solution that, that that solved this problem, I would dedicate it just like some cheapo DSL line to just in the background upload to you all the time. The yeah, yeah. But if if it if it couldn't sync what you record in a day in ProRes to me in a day, twenty four yeah. hours, no, it would take would a week. Be, it, would, it would take a week. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, if it takes a week to send me each show, uh, in I, a couple of weeks you'd be a month behind. I know. I I, I can make work. it work. I'll make it work. I'll make it work. Uh, all right. I want to get to this next story because this is my personal soapbox for the next. I'm, I've decided seven days. Uh, here's the problem: software developers are failing to implement crypto correctly, and each one of them is creating their own, their own implementation of it. And each individual adorable app for your Android, iOS, Linux, FreeBSD, or Windows or Mac device, and it's cute because developers have a great idea for their next great app. But the problem is they're not crypto experts, and this really is starting to feel like something maybe the operating system should resolve. So there was a new report that's out now, uh, and it shows it was a report based on a static and dynamic manual vulnerability analysis of over 200,000 commercial and self-developed applications used in commercial development uh, environments. So whatever the hell that means. And in this, they show that a lack of specialized training for developers and crypto libraries are too complex, and it leads to widespread implementation failures of encryption and haven't we just witnessed that over and over again on this show alan yes and, and that's basically the entire point of s2n by amazon yes is yes. that ssl's right. api is too hard to use and too easy to make mistakes so here's one where you know we will erase the data for you so you don't actually leak the the plain text and we'll you know give you a sane api that's easy and then we'll handle the complicated stuff in the back. And we won't ask you to pick which encryption algorithm to use because we know you don't know which one's right. <laughs> right, and it's going to change. Like, oh, hey, give you know, me security. Actually, and, and let's let's just let's be let's give developers credit. It, you know, when they ship their app, they pick the right one. A year later, it changes. Yep. That's, they, there's nothing they can do about that. Yeah. Whereas if they use uh, this library, as long as the library is up to date, it will pick the right thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, so Windows 10 has generated a little, you know, I almost wonder if it's just part of the hype train as it comes closer to release, but the register is really making a lot out of this one. Windows 10 is going to well, share... It's kind of a big deal. <laughs> yeah, it's going to share your Wi-Fi key with your friends' friends, you know. So basically, with this Wi-Fi Sense feature that's built into Windows 10, it will remember in plain text every Wi-Fi password you give it and share it with everybody on your Outlook contact list and optionally with all of your Facebook friends. 
No. Okay. Now listen. <laughs> Come on. Come on. It's not going to be like that. That's what it says. I think the register. I think the register. So okay. Here's a couple things that I don't know for sure because I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not a Windows Mobile user and I'm not a Windows 10 user. But I. The Mumble Room on Tech Talk today this morning tells tells me this feature has already been available on Windows Mobile for a little while, and it is off by default. Number one, and number two, it's 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 not so much kind of the way the register is sort of pitching it, but it's more like you want to get on a Wi-Fi network, and I want you to get on that Wi-Fi network. But instead of me writing di- writing down the password or me text messaging it to you, I'm going to share it with you. But I, I need a way to share it with you before you've actually joined the LAN. So basically, SMS is kind of my best option. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you some sort of key file that you can then import and then join the Wi-Fi network. I, I, I'm, I could be getting this wrong because I don't use any of these operating systems. But my right. understanding is it is a bit more reasonable than Register is reporting it. But it is at the point where, like, if I'm an IT sysadmin and I've got Windows 10 machines that I'm thinking about deploying and I've got a corporate Wi-Fi network, I definitely have to look into what the hell this is because this could be a big deal. Don't you think? Yeah, because well, this one seemed more like if I go to the, the coffee shop then uh, and, and get the password, it'll just be shared automatically to all of my contacts so that they could use it too. And I don't know exactly how you opt out of it uh, as far as somebody typing in the password. So I'm connecting my home Wi-Fi and I would really like my home Wi-Fi not to be shared. Uh, but they do mention that it the access point itself can opt out by adding underscore opt out to the end of the SSID. <laughs> which is going to lead to some pretty ugly SSID names. Yeah, but. no kidding. I don't like that at all. That's a mess. You know what else I don't like? Uh, Cisco is buying OpenDNS for $635 million. OpenDNS yes. was my plan to manage my kids' porn usage in the future, and now I'm not so sure about that. Now, Cisco claims they're not going to really do anything to affect the OpenDNS service, but uh, also, uh, I don't know if you knew this, this is Cisco. So what do you think, Alan? Yeah, uh, well, I first noticed this when on... Um, DNS crypt, the encrypted DNS thing, they pushed the config file change that would push, uh, change all the URLs from open DNS to Cisco URLs for uh, the name servers and Alre- so on. What? Already? Yeah. There's a bunch of changes on GitHub. Too soon. Too soon. Yeah. Uh, well, that's how most people found out about it. Because uh, we were talking a little bit about it on, um, on BSD Now, and we had a question for the audience specifically. If I want to implement the DNS, the filtering at the DNS server level yeah. to keep my kids out of the porn, which right. is what Chris wants to do and what you want to do. It's what I want to uh, do. Is there an open source solution that I could hook up with my own hosted DNS server? Right? If I, if I have my own PFSense or my own router I've built and I want to run a local DNS server, is there some open source software I can use that would let me implement uh, uh, you know, filtering like this and like a, an open source blacklist of porn sites or something? What's the answer? I'm asking the audience. Oh. Write us in. Oh, 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 I thought you said you answered that on BST now. Yeah. No, no, we asked this question. That's where I'm at now because yeah. I, like, I feel like I feel like every you know. every other day, to be honest with you, I learn a lesson like, oh, well, Chris, that's what you get for not rolling your own solution for this. You know what? Yeah. You know what? Um, Screw you, they shut it down. <laughs> Screw you, they got hacked. That's what you get. You should have rolled your own solution. And now open DNS gets by by uh, Cisco. And meanwhile, yeah. so Angela is asking so, me, is it okay to put our kids on the internet? I'm like, yeah, I got a plan, babe. And now, <laughs> now my plan's like, well, Cisco's got a plan. 
Well, we should ask Dan. He works at Cisco now. Well, he works in the security, uh, what's it, like Clam AV, the antivirus stuff. Maybe I should, Persona says I should just let them enjoy porn like everyone else does. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. oh, okay. um, I don't think I'm going to take parenting advice from my IRC chat oh, room. Another, completely unrelated to tech, basically, but yeah. there was this service that I depended on that has recently just shut down and, and taken all my history with it. Mm. I used uh, Genie, J-I-N-N-I, as a movie and TV show recommendation engine. So you go and tell it what you like, and it would give you really good recommendations. It had a great UI because, like, you pick a show and you say, more like this, and it have an interface, and there would be, like, boxes of different sizes of, uh, like, cover art or, or clips from the show of the show or movie. Uh, and the bigger they were, the more relevant they were to what you were looking for. Okay, and you could, yeah. like, set slider and be like, only stuff from 2000 and later, and I want stuff that's more realistic or more fantasy. And it was really great at picking the movies. Um, and that now they sell it as a service to AT&T and, and people in, you know, Verizon and so on uh, for TV stuff. Uh, but you can't – all the history I put into it, all the teaching – I can't access that. I can't do – they don't do movie recommendations for people anymore. They just took all the data I fed them rating like 500 movies and TV shows, uh, slurped that up into their database and algorithm. But I don't have access to anything anymore. Hmm. Yeah, that sucks, so, man. That does suck. I, I saw there's a, there's another one I saw from developed at a university in the state somewhere that I'm gonna look into trying to use to find the next movie I want to watch. <laughs> yeah, uh, actually, and also uh, see if I still have it. I I uh, I might have a recommendation. I don't cool. think I have. I had it bookmarked, but uh, um, there uh, movie.io or something like that's a really cool recommendation engine for those kinds of things. Now, Alan, you grabbed a series of uh, of uh, issues, huh? Knowledge-based articles, yeah. Yeah, related to the whole uh, leap second stuff. So wh- where do we start? Yeah, so uh, F5 has these load balancers called Big IP. Yeah. They're big load balancers used by sites that have a lot of traffic, and they're kind of big. And so they, uh, ahead of the leap second, and what, what's the date on that one? 20 mm, This one was posted on the uh, 6-19. Yeah. Are, are the orig- so, original publication date was 6-26-2012, but it was up- updated on 6-19-2015. Yeah. So ahead of the leap second, they published this article about how even though our uh, big IP appliances are based on Red Hat 4 and 5, which are old and out of support now, uh, which is one big enough problem to deal mm-hmm. with, like they're not vulnerable to the Red Hat bug that would cause them to reboot during the leap second. Why? I don't know. They just said, we're not vulnerable to that. Don't worry. Like, have they customized and it so much? that Something. Who knows? Then there's a second knowledge base article. Oh, you got the second link? Yeah, I'll pull it up. You go. Well, yeah, I got it. I got it. Good I don't no, want I got to spoil it. it. I got no, no, no. So, I got it. I got it. I got it. The, the second, le- the second knowledge base article is about how during the leap second your server might reboot. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. I love this. So the, the big IP system may reboot. Re- may reboot when configured to synchronize this clock with an NTP server. <laughs> Yeah. So if you actually want the clock on your big IP to be right, <laughs> then it'll crack. Like if you want your logs to be accurate, if you want all of your devices on your network to be on the same time, you know, those things. That is classic, Alan. That is, so you're not affected unless you use NTP. Then you're totally affected. Which uh, I, they don't say, but that seems like that should be the default configuration. 
yeah, man. Like, even if you don't configure to your own NTP server, maybe they ought to configure to, like, pool.ntp.org or something else like exactly. that, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Uh, let's talk about this. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, all right. So now, unless Make sure you get both links for this one, too. All right. Now, uh, okay. So we've got two links. Boy, this is a, this, Alan, this is like a double, like a double-packed roundup. Now, are, are mm-hmm. we starting with this tweet from uh, DYN Research? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So uh, Dyn is uh, the people that run DynDNS, which has yeah. been around since uh-huh. the internet was tiny. Um, and so they're showing that uh, they, they made this graph of impact of, of the leap second. They show BGP advertisement rate per 30 seconds. And you see right at midnight, there's this giant spike. And it's like, oh, the leap second caused something to go flip out. And all these BGP advertisements happened and so on. So what happened, really? Well, then in second, but actually what happened was one uh, network... Uh, called Excelx, yeah. accidentally announced Amazon from one side of the network through the other side of the network. So they became like a proxy where all Amazon traffic was accidentally leaking through them. So basically they announced all of Amazon's routes through their uh, Hibernia connection, which is a big backbone. And basically because most of the internet's, uh, or most of one section of the internet's routes to Amazon to go through them. <laughs> and then they've realized they did this and fixed it and that caused all this flapping routes at that time and it turns out wasn't actually related to leap second at all so sorry it's kind uh, of- nicely they actually kind of admit that it was their fault and that the problem was that they didn't have enough prefix filtering but also their isp didn't because it was an old connection set up before they bothered with prefix filtering and yeah hmm Hmm. Anyway, interesting insight into uh, how the internet works. Yeah, uh, there's an, another one. You know, they were talking about Aaron running out of IP addresses and right. how Aaron should just like reclaim IP addresses that aren't being used from like uh, GE and so on. And then somebody had the presence to point out that you know it's not the company that that is allocated the IP addresses or Aaron who says who owns an IP address. The source of truth currently is who's willing to accept the BGP announces <laughs> for it. <laughs> yeah. And whoever announces the prefix and everybody else accepts that, that's who owns that IP address now. Yeah, right. Uh, actually, you know what our next story, speaking of uh, BGP, uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, the FBI is investigating vandalism of fiber optic cables in uh, Livermore. Uh, apparently there have been 11 separate incidences of fiber optic cables yes. being cut in California. Yeah, and uh, and this has kind of actually become a bigger, a big enough deal that the FBI is putting out an alert, kind of warning people about this. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to make about it. Uh, it seems like, uh, I guess, if it's a big enough deal, then uh, eleven separate attacks. I, at least the internet, at least we kind of route around it, I suppose, right? Well, it depends. You know, if it's a backbone type connection, sure, it'll route around it, but it might cause things to be slow or whatever. But if you're getting, you know, if if you if there's a neighborhood over here. And they have cable, and then that all goes to an end node, and then that node has its fiber back to like the data center to actually get to the internet. You cut that fiber, all those people now have no internet. Mm-hmm. Now, so it depends where exactly which fibers you cut. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but yeah. of course, in the, in the regular newspaper coverage, they're talking about so if your internet is slow and, and videos won't, or like your email is slow to open or your videos won't play, it might be because of this. It's like not likely. It's like. <laughs> First of all, your email being slow. How, how does email be slow? Like, email's text. It's not slow. But a video not loading is more like it would just load really slowly if your internet connection was congested because half your routes were dead or something. Right. But, right. Okay. Anyway, randomness. Uh, next roundup story. So uh, a lot of times we talk about these major vulnerabilities, and we don't talk about how major companies roll these fixes out 
for mm-hmm. these major vulnerabilities across the network. Now, I kid you not, I was at IKEA yesterday, so go figure. Our next roundup story is all about how IKEA rolled out their patch for Shellshock across okay, the servers. So, uh, at the Red Hat Summit in Boston, uh, IKEA's IT director uh, showed up how they dealt with the Shellshock vulnerability and how they went in 2.5 hours, they tested, deployed, and upgraded all their infrastructure of 3,500 servers. Uh, and basically, they operate on this idea of having a, um, what do they call it? A sh- what's S something something? What are you talking See? about? What are you talking about? Uh, a sh- a, a, an SH. Uh, <laughs> what are you talking about? No, no, no. They, sorry. They use a, sorry, lost it here. Uh, standard Operating Environment, SOE. Oh, and basically, oh, 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 all their oh. servers are so identical that they could just push out the push, yes. the, the change once they tested it to yes. all the 3,500 servers, and it would just work. Standard anyway. operating environment, right? Yeah. So basically, the parts of their systems that are exactly the same on all 3,500 servers. Well, that makes it easier, doesn't it? Nice for them. Too bad that never actually happens in the real world. <laughs> well, they talk about how they actually manage it in their real world environment. Okay. So anyway, it's an interesting talk from a conference, and uh, you might get useful information. Yeah, I mean, they made it work, right? They had 3,500 servers they patched, so they obviously made it work. Hey, And they mostly depend on the stable ABI, which is also you can get from BSD. That's why we use BSD here at Scale Engine, because we can have all of our servers have exactly the compatibility. So even if we're using 9.1 here, 9.2 here, 9.3 here, it's all the same ABI. If I compile an application, it will work on all three of them. Alan, uh, can you wax poetically to me about SARP and uh, why it's great for uh, scalable address resolution protocols in large data centers? Right. So address resolution protocol is basically how when you want to, if you want to access another machine that's on the same network and you're not going to end up going through a router, you say as a broadcast out on the network, hey, what's the MAC address of this IP address? And then that machine will respond. Well, if you have a giant VLAN that has thousands of servers on it, that's going to be a lot of traffic and, and you know, a lot of people talking all the time. Or worse, if you have something like a VXLAN where you're actually spanning a VLAN across multiple data centers, maybe not even in the same country, so that all the, a bunch of VMs can appear to be on the same LAN as each other, then how are you going to handle having you know, thousands or tens of thousands of VMs all in the same network segment be able to talk to each other properly? So that's why this new RFC, uh, 7586, is an experimental proposition on how to do how to scale the address resolution protocol and basically speed up ARP. Because uh, it's something you might notice. Like if you uh, do a ping to a local machine, if you ever notice the very first ping has a much higher time, that's because it had to wait for the ARP reply uh-huh, before uh-huh. it can send the first ping. Okay. And so this might help us reduce that. You know, when you have a lot of uh, when you have huge numbers of VMs on the same network. It could be an interesting thing. Well, I am all about that, Alan. All right. And last but not least, unless I've nope. misclicked. Stories. Huh? Yeah. How many? What? No, There's what? two stories. Two stories. There's two okay. stories left. So, so not the next last. one should be another RFC. Oh, another geez. RFC? No, well, I, you know what, Alan? You would be impressed by how fast I can have enough RFC, another RFC. By the time you start talking about it, I'm going to have it. Yes. In fact, perhaps it's so, about SSL v3. Yes. So... It looks almost the same, but uh, RFC 7568, yeah. there's the previous one with 7586. Uh-huh. So like, you could look at the two URLs and think they were the same. <laughs> you might have. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, 
Adam Langley from Google and a bunch of other people have come together, including people from Mozilla, and have officially got accepted by the Internet Engineering Task Force. SSL v3 is now officially deprecated and should not be used for anything ever. Okay. Official here. We need to have a party. It should be cake. <laughs> Can we a celebration is what you're saying? Yes. <laughs> All right. I like it. I like so, it. So, yes. I love, uh, you know... Uh, Trying to find the best part of it here. Uh, it also goes through uh, breaking, uh, like section four or chapter four of it is all about SSL v3 is broken. And it describes all the different ways that SSL three, uh, v3 is broken and how we shouldn't use it. All right. I'll take it, Alan. I'll take it. But yes, I, uh, do we really um, need this, though, yes. to know that? But so okay. Chapter three, do not use SSL version 3.0. Oh, I like that. SSL v3 must not be used. <laughs> Negotiation of SSL v3 with, uh, from any version of TLS must not be permitted. There's <laughs> uh, a, a terminology thing in RFCs where specifically must, must not, required, shall, shall not, should, should not, recommended, may, and optional are all uppercase, and they have very specific meanings. There's actually an RFC uh, 2119 that describes the difference between must, required, shall, and should, and so on, and recommended, and what uh-huh, that means. Uh-huh. Yeah, like, must not be used and must not be permitted. Any version of TLS is more secure than SSLV3, although the highest version always uh, is preferable. Uh, pragmatically, clients must not send a client hello with a version of 3.0, uh, similarly, servers must not send a server hello, uh, indicating SSL v3. Any party receiving a hello message f- with the protocol version of 3 must respond with the protocol version alert and close the connection immediately. Love it. Alert. <laughs> In your face. <laughs> Good. Also talk about, you know, historically the TLS specification was not very clear on what you should do in this situation, but, but you must not negotiate SSL v3. Must not. Good. You know, therefore, TLS servers must accept any uh, hello message for TLS 1.0, but they must refuse to do SSL v3. All right. So, uh, Alan, are you ready for the last roundup in TechSnap 221? Cisco's UCDDM, you know, your Unified Communications Domain ma- Manager, has a default static password for the root account. What could be the big deal? Well, not the root account, but an account that can get root privileges. For a root account. Oh, okay. Okay. So- all right, lay uh, yeah. on me. So there's, basically, there's a support account with a static password that can be root on the device. Good, good, good. And it's every device ships with the same static password. Uh huh. So didn't we just talk about the SSH keys on all their virtual yeah. machines so, that were the so same last last week? Not virtual machines, but uh, Virtu- uh, some of their devices. Oh, oh, well, Cisco security oh, devices. Oh, well, Alan, with- hold on. There was also an issue with the SSH keys on their virtual appliances since our last episode. Another oh. separate issue. Yeah. Well, I know last week we talked about some uh, right. Cisco device or appliance shipping with an SSH key that was used by their support team, meaning that somebody compromised that they could get every yes. device. Well, a static password is worse yes. because instead of having to steal some like you know strong SSH key, all they have to do is brute force this static password, which I'm sure isn't very long. Uh, and if I know Cisco, they're still using MD5 crypt, not mm. something better. Oh. That so, makes you me know, the sad. Rent some video cards from Amazon uh, for Come a day on, dude. Don't tell them how to do it. <laughs> Don't tell them. Come on, save that for off the air. We'll make some money on the side. Right? Yeah. Oh, man, that's bad. That is bad. Oh, Cisco. It's been a... Br- yeah, at a year ago, Cisco said the same... Wow, a year ago. The same UCDM product included a default private SSH key. So they had an SSH key problem a year ago, too. So they removed the SSH key and forgot about a static password. <laughs> 
Don't forget that Cisco quality difference. Yeah. I mean, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm, I'm just putting that out there. Uh, all right. Well, Alan, is there anything else we want to cover on this week's episode of the TechSnap program? Nope. No. All done. No, we're all done. <laughs> yeah, all done. Two hours. I think that's enough. <laughs> we're good. We're good. All right. So uh, we'd love to have you join us live and hang out in our chat room. Go over to jblive.tv on a Thursday. We start this show off at 1 p.m. Pacific, which, if I am correct, is... 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. Boom. Sorry, I was not paying attention. No, yeah, it's okay. You know what? After 221 weeks, why would you expect that? And then also go to jupiterbroadcasting.com. After 221 weeks, how do you not know what time it is in the Eastern time zone in UTC? Fair. Fair question. Fair question. You know what's funny about that, too, is I hear these in reruns on the live stream in studio when I'm working here when we're not on air, and I hear you say that, and it still doesn't sink in. It's t- well, anyway. You have to be careful, because if you hear reruns from wintertime, right. the time zone is, is 2100 instead of 2100. Actually, that... If you will, if you can believe it, that is specifically why I do not commit it to memory because I know I am not smart enough to get the two clear. Because I, I, I'm not even fully grokking the concept of time. I feel like it is a construct that has been, uh, been pushed upon me that nobody asked me if I'm okay with this construct of time. I grok following the sun and, and that kind of stuff and circling it and stuff like that. That's cool. But when you start putting numbers on it and then you change those numbers, nobody asked me about that. So what I do is I just go to jupiterbroadcasting.com/calendar and I let the computers just convert it to whatever numbers I understand. And you can do the same. And then you go to jblive.tv when those numbers occur to a time that you want to go to. In fact, you can even add it to your own calendar. How about that for some magic? And then don't forget, we've also got those RSS feeds. So if you can't make it live, you get every single episode on demand. Just go to jupiterbroadcasting.com. Look for episode 221 of the TechSnap program. Links to every single stink of thing Alan talked about are there, as well as RSS feeds for videos and HD definitions of this very show. And that brings us to the end of this week's broadcast. Thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap. We'll see you right back here next week.